Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. There are two rules to remember if you want to have a good time. Rules. No rules. Rule number one. Keep your friends close, but your enemies close. Rule number two. You're a dragon. Be a dragon. This week on Double Dragon, Steve and I talk about some of the show departures from the book content. Then my roundtable on the prologue to A Clash of Kings. I include that conversation in full in a run-up to the new season of Electric Bookaloo over on the main Bald Move feed. My guests for that are Catherine Ollie. She is a research professor at St. Hilda's College at a little school called Oxford University. Philosopher Jason Eberle also joins the group. He specializes in bioethics and done a lot of research on ancient philosophy as well. And then last but not least, J.J. Hollenbach, who is a dramaturg and a visual storyteller based in Hollywood, California. I found this the perfect kickoff to A Clash of Kings. I hope you enjoy it. All right. Without further ado, here is stand-up comic Steve Osborne. Hello. Hello. So I got a couple book versus show differences here. I'm gonna run them past you, and I like you to give me good choice, bad choice, or meh. Those are the options. Okay. All right. The first one is uh, in the book. Alicent is a decade older. This means that she's about a decade older than Rhaenyra. It also means that she's only about a decade younger than Viserys. Uh. So you kind of lose the their best friends part of it. Mm-hmm. But then maybe you're a little bit less weirded out by Viserys deciding he's going to marry for love. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I think it's a good choice. You like that they leaned into the weird. Yeah, because, I mean, why not? Everything else is weird, <laughs> right? I mean, it would be... I'm like, well, let's keep that normal. <laughs> All right. That's interesting. Because I kind of felt like, kind of like that they were a similar age because you kind of needed that backstory with those two. Yeah. But I did feel a little bit weirder about, like, I, I feel like I, I was meant to root for Viserys in a lot of ways. Sure. And this complicates it. It's a little bit complicated. I mean, I guess given the trying to capture a particular moment in history or yeah and so i think i think because i mean there's a lot you're having to do to accept uh the world that everybody's living in um so while it's unsettling on one hand it it's not it's not out of the realm of of that world's reality right um Right, and and since we're willing to, I mean, to go on this journey, we're going to have to accept a lot of weird stuff, a lot of stuff that we're probably don't find to be super savory. Um, right, and you almost get that sense when everyone in the room is telling Viserys to 
marry an eight-year-old or whatever. <laughs> right. So because yeah, and that's and that's the advice. <laughs> so this is the, this is the best political advice. <laughs> right. So there is a sense of like, well, that's you know, at least they're not related. Like I think that's where they kind of walk away from. <laughs> The bar is so low. It's an in, yeah, it's an interesting it's an interesting benchmark. But all right, the next one is Viserys isn't motivated by a secret prophecy in the book. Oh. There's nothing. There's no sign that he aspires to have prophetic dreams. There's no secret knife. There's nothing like that. You just get the sense he's just your garden variety king, trying to make his way in the world. Oh, so good choice, bad choice, or meh. Um, I might lean towards meh, just because, I mean, I am curious what, what sets the, um, putting Aegon on the throne in motion, if not the Three's Company misunderstanding. Yeah, that's all show only, I guess. I mean, I guess that there's the idea that it's just sheer ego. It's like, I want right. my son on the throne. Kind of comes down to greed, I guess, in the book. You, know, you, you said it was mine. Give it to me. Uh, Alicent that does that? Alicent is very Machiavellian. I'm going to get my son on the throne come hell or high water in the book. And Renera is like, it was promised to me. You, I don't care if you think uh, that I can't rule because I'm a woman. Uh, this is this was my this is my birthright. Right. So I mean, I mean yeah, so once yeah, so we once you you made a choice, right? You have like once you once you change their ages in the relationship you kind of have to now follow a different path right like you can't just have in order to to make that complication still matter yep. you can't have allison just doing about face right you, she needs to have something so it's and it you know there's some criticism that it's like oh really it's it was just a ramblings of a, of a decaying man that and confusion that set this whole thing into motion which which I, I, which I do see, I, I do understand the criticism, but I also <laughs> sure, sure. kind of like the idea that that's all it took. <laughs> you know, like like the fragility <laughs> of of power is is such that that that's what it could take. You know, right? That feels like a, that that's an interesting commentary. Yeah, yeah like you, you make one joke at a, like a, a correspondence dinner that insults Trump, and then the the entire country's plummeted into a eight year hellscape. <laughs> right. Right. Yeah, exactly. Um, I do yeah. like, I, I think that on occasion fans will say like they don't like that they brought in the whole prophecy business. Probably because it reminds them too much of the previous show. Mm. I like it. I kind of feel like I like that Viserys has a different view of what it, the ideal Targaryen is. Viserys yeah, and, is I, and, I, and I do like that that kind of also left him sort of disenchanted as well, right? When it didn't seem like it was going the way he thought. And like maybe he put all of his eggs in the wrong basket. So like it, That's added, right. it added another. That's right. So you get to play with lost faith yeah, and yeah. whatnot. All right. Um, in the books, Renera is actually pretty close with Lena. Mm. So they kind of leaned away. F they leaned into the, the friendship with Alicent, made them best friends. And then they... They kind of yada yada over the friendship between Renera and Lena. Um, you, you get introduced to her as a little kid, and then you meet her once on the dance hall, and then the next thing you know, she's like suicide right. by dragon. Yeah. Um. So, uh, good choice, bad choice, or it, meh? It, it might. I don't know. Maybe it's maybe it's a bad choice. I mean, because I feel like Lena. I feel like her her death and and her in her, you know relationship with Damon was supposed to. 
it felt like it needed to have more in the in the series. Yeah, it kind of, it's one of those misfires of the show. One of the few, in in my view, one of the few misfires of the show. I feel like he they they marry, they have kids together. It all happens off screen. Why not give me more about her character? Right. So when it when she goes, it matters, right? I mean, like, yeah, because I feel right. like it was kind of like you know, it, 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 there there was a little bit of like, well, you you put a lot of emotional eggs in that basket. Right and right, and did. we didn't even really. I mean, if you kill off a character and you're not really even too familiar with who they are, right? And and it felt like because like there was all this talk about too, like you know who you know who's gonna get killed. Like that should have had one of those Game of Thrones whoa moments. So right. Lena's gone, and it was kind of like okay, well we didn't really know her. So <laughs> sure, okay. Um, in the uh, books, there's a dwarf named Mushroom who always assumes the worst in everyone. And always assumes that everyone is sleeping with everyone else. Mm. Good choice, bad choice, or meh to delete Mushroom from the story. Well, we get like, do we get like kind of a nod to Mushroom in one of the other? We do get a Mushroom nod. He's a drummer. Yeah. <laughs> you know what? It's like, <laughs> I, uh, good choice to make him a drummer. <laughs> uh, okay. Bad choice to leave him out. I mean, I like I like a skeptical dwarf. <laughs> there were a few characters in the first series that were kind of like, like they were just really cynics. Like, like every now and again, the hound would say, like, yeah, being a knight is being a liar. That that's what it be. You, if you're a knight, you're a liar and a murderer. I'm just, I'm just a good murderer, right? Mm. At least I don't lie about it. In this show, everyone's kind of like pretending a little bit. Yeah, you know, unless you get auto behind the scenes whispering, there's no one sort of like at court. Calling BS on the whole system, right? And so you needed—I don't know if it needed to be mushroom, but it needed, you needed a little bit more of that humanity, just to connect with the audience. I thought, yeah, like and you could have even split the difference too. You know, like and maybe don't have him be a dwarf, but just have him be a skeptical drummer. <laughs> That'd be fantastic. <laughs> He's <laughs> just coming in like the band's putting their stuff together. You know, like they're finally they're they're humping their equipment. He's bringing in the the drums and everything. Like everyone just says, "Oh, today is going to be a great day for the queen." <laughs> yeah, right. And then he just moves on. He's doing ironic rim shots after every line. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, perfect. <laughs> all right, uh, all right. In the show, there's no hint that Laris is sexually motivated. He just seems to be the faithful servant of Alicent. In the show, in the books, excellent choice. I, I, uh, I, I love, I love he's, that. He's certainly more interesting. Oh in the yeah, show. that was, and then the the cringe factor, everything was just like yowza, like he just, and it just really puts Allison in sort of this like, uh, like she's now like there was an act, right? Like it's it's not just enough to to be getting this information. It's the now. sense that this has happened twenty times before. Oh yeah, exactly. She just knows it's like here we go. This is this is this is the real dance of the dragon. <laughs> All right, finally, um, there's no hint that Lenore escaped across the sea. the The rumor is that his lover killed him, and that's it. Right? That there's. He doesn't survive in the book. Oh, really? So good choice, bad choice, or meh. Huh. Well, I'm hmm. I'm going to put it in the meh category because, I mean, I feel like maybe there's more. We'll, we'll get more out of him later. Like the show will, will make a dis, 
because to keep them alive it could be to keep them it could be but i'll tell you what one the one thing that's got me resisting becoming a full-fledged team black member is that renair is complicit in the death death of some poor guy yeah. in order to pull off the ruse right true well in the books lenore's just gets in a lover's quarrel and he he gets killed. Oh, Renair is not so she's plotting or interesting. Anything. So, oh, so she wasn't even like off their hands. It was yeah. She's she's nowhere involved in this. In the Whoa. So that it really does change the way that I think about who I think is the main character of the show at this point. Yeah. Okay. That's it. Well, that, that now that I now I understand that. I mean, that might could it be a bad choice? Because I mean, you. I don't know. I, I kind of like the idea that I can't root for anyone. Yeah. You know, now that Viserys is gone, I kind of feel like I kind of like the idea that the the greens and the blacks are both equally monstrous. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, well, yeah. Maybe the jury's out on that one. I. Uh, I, I. I mean, I. I think it's a, these are all intriguing choices, right? And and it does put a little more onus on the showrunners to to pull these things off and to tie them together so that they, if you make the choice um, and it like for your, in your case, like it really complicates how you, yeah. how you root, then you don't, you know, hopefully they don't lose sight of that. Right. Like, I mean, yeah, you made the choice. Now I want to see the logical consequences of it. I, 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 at some point I would like to see that plot line come around. I mean, one thing that George Martin's really good at is like, Something that you did 15 years ago may have consequences in the present. Mm. Um, I don't hate the decision. I just want to make sure that they follow through with right. it. I get that. Um, one little last thing, and I want to get your take on this. What if I was going to promise you, Steve, mm. that season two would have no time jumps at all? I'd be in. I'm all in. You would like it better? I think so. I think, yeah. Okay. I think most people agree. Yeah, and also just like just keep keep the same actors if you can. That'd be great. <laughs> nope, no promises. <laughs> I mean, if you want to change the mountain on me every once in a while, I mean, I'm okay with that. <laughs> I started watching the shows before I started reading the books. So I had already been introduced to Stannis at that point. I think how you get introduced to the, the books or the show and which you've been exposed right. to first will change everyone's experience and how they feel about that. Yeah, I, I watched the show and then started reading the book simultaneously. So by the time I got to this book, I had not yet been introduced to the actual Stannis on the screen yet. Ah, right. What about you, Kate? Did you watch the show first or read the book first? Um, so I, I was kind of aware of the books um, and the show, but I think I decided I wanted to read them before I actually watched the show. But I already at that point knew several of the major spoilers. So I, I knew things like the Red Wedding were going to happen yeah. just from kind of living in the world and, and picking it up from friends who'd read it. So, so I had a kind of... I, I already had a lot of knowledge about the series before I actually started reading or, or watching it, but I, I'm pretty sure I did read the books first, although it was it was all kind of a similar kind of time as I was finishing up my undergrad degree. Yeah, um, now this was over 10 years ago, so I'm wondering, had you already decided 
to study medieval literature yeah, in Yeah, I was earnest. already studying it. I wouldn't have read Game of Thrones except that um, I did my degree at Cambridge in Anglo-Saxon, Norse and Celtic, and, and everybody was reading fantasy. Um, you know, all of my all of my friends, all of my peers were reading fantasy, and it's not really something I'd read that much of before. Right. Um, and that was kind of part of why I started reading it. And, and I, I just instantly loved it. And it, it was great because it, it links up with all of the kinds of themes of the, the literature I was working on, but you know, yeah. interprets it in new and exciting ways. Well, I definitely want to come back to that for sure. But Jason, what, what about you? Did you start reading first or were you introduced to the show first? Uh, my experience was kind of similar to JJ's. Basically what happened is uh, I'd heard about the show. The show had just wrapped its second season or was in the midst of the second season. And I decided that I at least wanted to read the first book first. So I ordered it from Amazon, just the first book, a nice hardcover edition. I read the prologue of the first book, okay. put the book down, went back on Amazon, ordered the other four books and the first two seasons of the show on Blu-ray. So, so that is to say that by the time I got to this prologue, like JJ, I had already had seen both the first two seasons, I was already introduced to Stannis. Uh-huh. So yeah, I was I was already invested in the narrative with those characters. Yeah, and Jason, when you so when you read this, when you reread a chapter like this, do you see like show Stannis in your head while you're reading along? I do, and it's always interesting how it jumps out. Like the you know um, Martin's description of the characters because I I I just reread it, but I think like. Like the way he describes it, I think Stannis was like bald or balding. Uh-huh. Uh, the way Martin describes it, of course, that's not the case with the the, the cast. But certainly, Stannis's voice, like, and so uh-huh. on. That that's how when I when I read a book, typically um, a fiction book, I often, as I get to know the characters and read character descriptions, I typically try to think of if this were to be a show or a movie, who would I cast? Oh, that's in that interesting. Role? And let that's... that kind of my imagination run with that. That but... was actually a question I wanted to ask you, JJ, like when you're reading a book like this, because you're sort of focused on visual storytelling, do you think, oh, I think I'd cast this person in this role? Um, yeah, there's, you know, there'll be, there's always an aspect to that. Because if I'm reading something inescapably, I can't help but think, you know, is this a property I want to work on? (laughs) (laughs) Sure, yeah. Um, Does this attract me, right? Right. Right. So does that happen in this book as well? Do you think, well, you know, who would be fun in that role as this person or this is always an actor that I've always loved and I'd love to see that person in this role? Uh, Casting has just been a forte of... HBO in general, but uh-huh. uh, particularly of you know Game of Thrones and House of Dragon, they right. just really nailed it with their casting. And well, the other and thing that that so show did was it it ca- I mean we knew a few few of these characters right we knew a few of the actors from other things right uh, notably right. Sean Bean Sean. and a few others but there were so many in that cast that were absolutely new. And, you know, especially the child actors, we, we absolutely didn't know them from anything right. else. So, you know, a, a lot of those actors will always be associated with that show now. Right. Um, okay. I want to continue the conversation. I should actually read the synopsis of this chapter so we can actually start talking about it. So after a visit from Shireen and Patchface, 
Maester Cresson is told that Davos has returned with bad news. Most of the bannermen under House Baratheon have sided with Renly. While Lord Stannis has the better claim, it seems that Renly's politicking has won him the better army. On his way to advise Stannis, Cresson meets Davos on the stair, and the two lament the stubborn pride of Stannis, who is hell-bent on war, even if it means he will press his claim without allies. Stannis recounts several old grievances. We've forgotten. Robert and Ned Stark, they were the heroes, the glorious rebels, marching from battle to battle, liberating towns from the yoke of the Mad King while I held Storm's End with 500 men. No one has forgotten your grace. No. Robert did. He gave Storm's End to Renly after the war. Renly never fought a day in his life. He was only a boy. So why'd he give him Storm's End? And would rather hear the advice of Lady Celsi, who has recently converted to the faith out of Ashai. By the end of the meeting, it is clear that Stannis intends to kill his younger brother. Cresson resolves to kill the source of the new religion in a hope to avert fratricide. Later that night, Cresson shares a poisoned cup of wine with Melisandre. She seems entirely unaffected, but Cresson dies. I was really frustrated with this prologue when I very first read it. Mm-hmm. Um, and the reason why I was frustrated was because I had read the first book, like very quickly I read the first book. Yeah. And then I was like, man, I could see Arya's coming next and I can see Sansa's on the way. And I just mm-hmm. I want to get back to these characters. And I don't care about Maester Cresson and his problems <laughs> or his gargoyles or yeah. anything like that. I really want to get to these characters that I've I've come to love. Right. And I think that going back and rereading it more carefully this time, it was really quite rewarding. So I thought we'd start with you, Kate. I would love to hear, I've asked you all to uh, prepare an observation and then a, a question for the group. Uh, which do you want to do first, the, the observation or the question? Um, I'd like to start with the observation. Yes. Uh, if that's okay. So Absolutely. the thing that really struck me about this, this prologue was I felt it was the first time in the whole series, A Song of Ice and Fire, that Martin really engages with the kind of clever fool motif mm. um, because Patchface comes in and it's not something I think that's really there in Game of Thrones. Um, but suddenly you have this very well-known motif, really it comes up in a lot of fantasy literature. So I was thinking of kind of Robin Hobb, obviously Fitz and the Fool and um, Guy Gabriel Kay in Tigana. Again, the Fool is a very important figure Um, in that novel as well. And I think this is the first time Martin really decides to engage in it in this series. Um, So I was really intrigued by by Patchface and his characterization and the way the different characters respond to him, Um, and particularly the parallelism that is set up between um, Patchface as the fool and as Melisandre points out the wise man as the fool. So obviously the chapter ends with Cresson being humiliated by having to wear the helmet with the the antlers and the bells. Um, And I hadn't really noticed this until I went back and and reread it in more detail. But then we have this Aya chapter that starts the kind of book proper. And then we go to Sansa. Mm. And in the Sansa chapter, the same thing happens. A man is reduced to the status of a fool. This time it's Sedontos. Um, and I just thought there was a really interesting parallelism here that's set up between um, 
between all the different kind of characters because Crescent is made a fool. Um, and it's, it's again, it's, it's at the instigation of a woman. Um, Melisandre first kind of pulls out this parallelism. Oh, she, she jokes, you know, we have the, the clever fool and the, the foolish wise man. Yeah, then you have Dantos and Sansa. And then Dantos and Sansa. And, and Sansa, again, is the, the instigator there. And Joffrey does it because to him it seems even more cruel. Like she's appealing to his right. cruelty there. Um, and I think it's really interesting that Stannis... Stannis does it anyway, even though we're encouraged to think from Crescent's perspective that that's not a part of his nature um, habitually, that he's he's more of a just than a, a deliberately cruel man. But right. actually, there's a, a strong connection between the kinds of kingship that is modelled by Stannis on the one hand and by Joffrey on the other. I think really doesn't bode well for Stannis Um yeah. Overarching narrative. Yes. Now, can you tell me more about these fools in ancient literature? Like, what what function do they serve for the stories that they inhabit? Yeah, so I think they're a really important literary motif that has a really long history. And I think the, the key thing about the fool is that the fool can say things that are true, either that are true, but people don't recognize that they are true. So I think the fool either speaks unrecognizable truth, which is kind of the case with Patchface, because it's, it's really unclear what he's saying about the fish fall upwards and, and all of this stuff about what happens under the sea. Um, but also I think the fool can say the unsayable truth, things that people know are true anyway, but mm. do not have the status to say. And the fool in his kind of capacity as somewhere in between statuses as someone that is able to satirically comment on on the king um, has the ability sometimes to to comment on these these aspects um, and there's a certain latitude I think granted to the fool I mean the really famous examples are, are all Shakespearean King Lear and the fool mm. um, and they're a way of getting inside the king's psyche um, in some ways so I think that we would expect Patchface in that case to say something true or say something um, pertinent to the plot of the story. And I have a couple ideas of what that might look like, but I'm wondering if you had, if you wanted to take a swing at. Yeah. So, I mean, I think the, when he starts singing about the shadows, I think yes. clearly that's meant to be um, a sort of foreshadowing of, of obviously the, the shadow that will eventually murder Renly. Um, and then I think it's an interesting question of, of is there anything else in his discourse that's, um, that is of, of significance? So I, I went forward to A Dance with Dragons yes. um, to look again when he's reintroduced. Um, and again, he's, he's sort of, um, he has a couple of interesting lines. He says something, in the dark, the dead are dancing, which obviously again at the wall seems quite, quite pertinent. But there's still a lot to do with the merman and the crabs that is quite opaque still. Yeah. Um, I thought it was interesting that when Mel is introduced, you know, she's got this long litany of, of how the Lord of Light should be described. But one of the things that she calls the Lord of Light is the Lord of Flame and Shadow. And I thought that was an interesting little link to the shadows come to play. This is exactly the song that he keeps singing that that really is it's it just disconcerting it's a little bit scary to shireen you know i think that's really interesting and then the the change in her demeanor also really interests me because she's quite 
when she poses that initial kind of jest, uh, we have the clever fool because she clearly hears something in his song about the shadow um, and the foolish wise old man. And then when she sees him again in Dance with Dragons, she's she seems much more almost afraid of Patchface, and and she says um, his lips are red with blood. Um, and and I'm really interested in that. Um, alteration in her because first of all Patchface doesn't seem to bother her in the prologue and yet by A Dance With Dragons um, she's she's sort of seems to certainly have some qualms about the things that he is saying. Interesting very interesting I, I totally forgot about how he comes back into you know these later but it's been a long time since I've actually read Dance With Dragons um, Jay, so let's let's come back to you for your question a little bit later. JJ, um, observation about this prologue. Um, one of the things I found interesting when I was reading it was it, it was interesting that you brought up the shadows because the others are often described as like these shadow figures. Yeah. And, you know, there's, I, I went through and I double checked, you know, all the George's prologues deal with death they introduce a character you know it's almost like it's one of the star trek characters in a red shirt Um, yeah (laughs) only you get to know george has this real this great quality where he'll get you to know the the character in the red shirt that he's about to kill off sure um and i think in all of them the character who it's focused on is either killed or is about to be killed in all five of the prologues. Interesting. It's uh, a little bit like, and I, I had a different guest point this out to me, so I can't take the credit, but uh, Stephanie Barbe Hammer suggested that his prologues are a little bit like detective procedurals. Mm-hmm. Like if you look at a, a detective show, like the first scene will be, you'll see the murder happen. Right. And you don't necessarily know who the killer is, but you see it happen. Right. And then, of course, the, the, the plot is about, you know, the, the hero detective trying to figure out who's responsible for the murder. In this case, Crescent kills himself. Right. Um, but there's also, I mean, a, there's always some religious or quasi religious aspect to all of those prologues, you know, where it's interesting, you know, the maester basically pitting the religion of the seven and his beliefs against melisandre and her beliefs right and the clash of the two and uh there's always a component about about death you know just as death follows life my question that sort of goes with it is you know how game of thrones what the aspect of the different religions that we get used to is there a life after death if there is one um and what that might mean in Martin's uh, that, world, does Martin envisage a world where some of these gods are real and maybe there is right. a, a beyond? That's an interesting question. I don't know. What do you think, Jason? Uh, well, Jason, I'd like to hear from you on this. And then, of course, we'll get to your observation. Um, well, so, yeah, on the point about religion, um, I always was struck by in the world that that Martin creates that there's aside from Melisandre's religion, there's a lot of tolerance for different religious views, right? People pray to the old gods and the new, and people kind of had their allegiances. And, mm. and so there isn't like this sort of super strict 
I mean, everyone, again, kind of believes in the seven and so on, but they all kind of prayed in their own way. They take different members of the seven. Yeah, the Ironborn uh, have their own religion, right? Yeah, exactly. And all this kind of tolerated. And, it's, you know, it's not like you have the, you know, the the Inquisition coming down, telling people what you can and can't believe, at least not until the uh, the High Sparrow takes over um, later on. But but then when it comes to Melisandre's religion, you know, I think what what... Maester Crescent represents is the sort of fear of what specifically monotheism brings, mm. and you kind of com, you know compare this to the state of the you know the ancient world um, as depicted in the Hebrew scriptures, um, where you have all these different religious groups, right? The Babylonians and the Amalekites and the Hittites and so on. Again, they all have their different gods and so on, and then the the Israelites come in. Um, with their one true God. And so there's always kind of this suspicion of, of concerns about there being a, a singular God. Mm. Um, and, and I think we've seen that both historically, I think you see in Game of Thrones, you see in uh, other things like Battlestar Galactica with the Cylon belief in one true God compared to the colonials. Mm. So I, I, it's a, it's a common refrain. And I don't know in terms of the intention of the author, if it's supposed to be, um, a critique of mm. monotheism that we should, you know, import back into the real world, or if it's just kind of raising these kinds of questions and concerns, and again reflecting maybe historically how how polytheistic religions, which by virtue of their polytheism, tended to be more open minded and tolerant of different yeah, religious views that's versus the sort of singular monotheism, right. Well, that that's fascinating to me. I mean, I didn't know we were going to go this direction, but I think it's interesting that I think that in a lot of the earliest Hebrew texts, there almost is a very high tolerance for the Israelites for sort of a at least a henotheistic belief, where like there's a God of different regions all around. And then as you see sort of the, the texts evolve over time, it's like, no, those other beliefs, those other gods are demons. If you want good theology, you need to get on board with this particular Yahweh worship. Mm -hmm. And so you almost see an evolution of of Hebrew thought, you know, over the course of the Hebrew Bible. By the time we get to Rome, it's interesting. These Christians are a problem for Rome because they're so committed to their their own God that they won't they won't worship at the Roman imperial cult. And that becomes a source of difference between but i think at that point jews and christians have that particular problem in common um no very much so in terms of like the roman empire yeah the problem that christians experienced uh was not that they worshiped a different god is that they didn't also worship the other culture that's right gods. yeah now now with mel we have this an, an additional problem because mel's not indigenous to westeros and so she's almost like this missionary figure who's gone out to spread her particular religion in a different nation who, who, as far as we know, I don't, I don't know about you, but um, I don't think that this faith is very well known in Westeros. Um, I think we've got like a Thoros uh, connection a little bit later on. Uh, but otherwise I think, I think she really does function like, like a monotheistic missionary in this mm -hmm. sense. All right, so sorry about that. You got you got me started on my own field of research, JJ. So, all right, Jason, what what's your observation of this prologue? 
Yeah. So my observation kind of follows on, on Kate's a bit because um, I was thinking, you know, both about patch face, but also about Shireen. Um, so I, again, for the benefit of listeners, uh, haven't listened to one of the earlier ones. So I'm, uh, you know, I, I'm a bioethicist. I teach medical ethics and one of the areas in which I teach and do research is disability studies and, you know, lots of questions about, you know, you know, the ontology of disability is disability is always um, uh, inherently lead to a lower quality of life, or is it just a different way of being human? So you have these medical and social models of disability and things of that nature. And so I'm kind of like attuned now since I've been working in this area to anytime you have a character uh, with some sort of of disability uh, appear in, in literature or film. So in this case, you know, we have Patchface who, He doesn't have like um, what we would say is a congenital cognitive disability, but certainly he's the trauma he experienced Mm -hmm. uh, has led to him having a sort of intellectual developmental disability. And Um, also, the text also says that he has no memory of his life before, right? So that I yeah, so there there is some there's some damage that has happened to him, and I I don't know if it's. I don't know if I would think of it as a disability, but maybe you can help me with this. Well, on, on the social model disability, it would be viewed as disabling because of how he's treated. And, and this is why it's important, to, uh, as, as Kate was alluding to, to think about how you know, the, the, the court fool, the buffoon, is depicted in literature, Game of Thrones or any other literature, compared to the real history. And... Um, I just put a link in the chat for your benefit, your guys's benefit. I know our, our listeners can't see it, but this is a I link can put to it a- in the show notes if you want me to. Oh, that'd be great. Yeah. It's a painting uh, by Diego Velasquez from in the Prado from the 17th century. There's this whole section in the Prado of, of his painting of, of buffoons. And some of them are very clearly evidently people uh, who have, you know, down syndrome or something like that. Mm. Um, this individual who is, I picked this one in particular because he's, you know, a dead ringer for Peter Dinklage. Um, he absolutely is. Oh my gosh. Yeah. And, and he was known as El Primo and uh, served in uh, the court of uh, Philip the fourth. And the thing about El Primo is yes, he had dwarfism, but um, as far as I, you know, understand, you know, there was, no intellectual disability or anything like that. And um, he's a very good looking fellow. I, w- I very might good say looking fellow. Now yeah. what, what period is this? What, where, where does uh, this seven, come from? 17th century. Okay. All right. Yeah. The, the painting was done in 1644 and, and apparently from, from life, from, you know, that, that Primo sat for him. So that's the time period. So the idea was that, you know, persons with what was you know, perceived to be a physical disability like dwarfism uh-huh. or perceived or an intellectual disability like Down syndrome um, were often relegated to these buffoon roles. Yet, especially in the case of someone like El Primo, who's, I, I need to read a biography of him because he just seems like a fascinating figure, but he basically had the ear of the king. Like he was not just someone who pranced and danced around. He was also someone who could advise the king. Interesting. Um, and and so there is a sense of someone in this role actually it, it is an elevated social status while also being very much a demeaning social status. Hmm. So this all ties in with this idea of the social model of disability that um, that the way Patchface is viewed and treated, or the way Shireen with her grayscale right now 
a, di- a disfiguring physical disability. Um, Which would absolutely have a social impact as well, right? Exactly. Um, you know, which is, you know, one of the reasons that, you know, even the show, right, is depicted, you know, it's, it's clear that until obviously Stannis has his horribly tragic turn and does what he decides to do to her, um, he also shows very evident love for her, but yet she's also kind of kept locked away, right? Interesting. You know, she, she is kind of in this, in this um, shunned sort of uh, mode of existence. Now, when you say shows love for her, are you thinking of like the show depiction of that relationship? Because I don't feel like I get that much from this particular chapter. Certainly not from this chapter. No, I was, okay. I was talking about the, the television show. I still remember how you smiled when I put that doll in your cradle. And you pressed it to your cheek. By the time we burnt the doll, it was too late. I was told you would die. Or worse, the grayscale would go slow. Let you grow just enough to know the world before taking it away from you. Yeah, I almost get the sense that with Stannis that he's almost like emotionally stunted. Or he's like, he's so bought into like the hegemonic part of his masculinity that it's it's almost like he would think it as weakness or something mm-hmm. to show he doesn't even love it he doesn't even really show affection to his wife it's like you know once or twice a year he'll come to her bedroom but other than that this is a very political relationship mm-hmm. between husband and wife no that that's exactly right let, let me just quickly mention so one other character that kind of fits this motif of disability is maester crescent uh because he's elderly Right. right. So uh, as we age and we and develop just you know more you know physical infirmities, sometimes also cognitive infirmities. Um, in in Maester Crescent's case, what's happening is he's being shoved out of position, right, by the younger Maester, and um, and you know not woken up to come to the dinner and, mm. and and so on, and it's just kind of this. So with 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 all of these, with you know Shireen with her physical disfigurement with patch face with his trauma induced cognitive issues and lack of memory and with maester crescent with his with his advanced age they're all just kind of being ignored shoved aside hidden away pushed aside and yet they all have that you know they're all seeing the truth of what's happening Mm -hmm. (laughs) they're all intelligent people in their own way you know, again, Patchface's pronouncements seemingly um, gibberish to everyone else, but we know they're meaningful. Um, <laughs> Maester Crescent sees through Melisandre and so on. And, 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 and Shireen is obviously, you know, again, a very intelligent young girl who, um, whose life, unfortunately, will be cut short. So I, uh, let's, let's uh, uh, transition to a few questions for group discussion. Kate, do you have a question for us? Yeah, so I think my question... There were many questions to choose from, um, but I think the, the question I kind of settled on was just a really small textual point. Um, when we're introduced to Shireen, um, we're told that she has nightmares and she's always had nightmares all of her life. And I was just really struck by whether that was meant to be something significant, given that we know the, the tragic ending uh. that she's destined for, or whether this was a kind of throwaway comment, um, or even whether... And this is quite speculative, but I think the Baratheons have a, a tiny bit of kind of um, Targaryen blood running through them. Ah, we've got that whole dream. Um, yeah, and whether there's something, whether she has any kind of inkling that 
you know, her life is going to be short and sad, essentially, um, or, or not really. Um, well, maybe you could help me with this. So I think that in modern fantasy literature, there's there's a kind of a almost um, a trope that the child sometimes with disabled folks as well, but also with children who are sort of in a liminal state might have more access to the supernatural or the, you know, the ultra natural or something like that. And I'm wondering, do we find that in medieval literature as well? Um, Well, that's a good question. Um, I think not really. Um, I can't think off the top of my head of, of any good examples um children tend to be quite peripheral really in so much medieval literature i mean a lot of great work is is going on now and kind of recovering narratives of of childhood um narratives of infancy and things but um i mean perhaps the the one thing that might be um that might be pertinent is in icelandic sagas you get quite a lot of exposure narratives so children that, and this happens in, in ancient literature as well. So children that for one reason or another, after they are born, their parents don't want to raise them or specifically their father doesn't want to raise them. Okay. And therefore they are um, left out somewhere to die. Um, and obviously in a literary sense, the actual function of that motif is to mark out the significance of that child because the child is invariably rescued and goes on to become someone very significant, very important. Mm. Um, but the the impact of that exposure episode and kind of what has what has happened to them being left in that liminal space, some people have interpreted it as a kind of the, the natural world space because you know they're left outside. And there's quite a lot of interesting research into the ways in which that certainly in the literary narrative seems to have mm. quite long-term impacts on them. Um, so um, it has yeah been discussed. Robin War discusses it as um, potentially that there's a kind of eco internalization um, that they they absorb some of the kind of natural world into themselves from from being there at this okay. critical moment. And then of course it, we know in Martin's world that dreams are liminal. So we have several characters that have wolf dreams, and of course we have a few characters that might have prophetic dreams. Then the question is, is Shireen, are Shireen's dreams like your standard garden variety nightmares that almost anyone had as if they're going to be raised in a castle with a bunch of, you know, gargoyles and dragons everywhere? Or are these significant? Um, I don't know if the text wants us, wants to answer that for us quite yet. I don't know. Jason, do you have an idea about this or JJ? It's specific to Shireen? Or, yeah, I guess, I guess, yeah. I mean, I think that this is a broader conversation. Well, let's start with Shireen. You know, I hadn't thought about her too much, but particularly, you know, she has, seems like I have this lively fantasy world, but I hadn't really thought about her in terms of uh, that particular aspect. Um, I don't know. How about you, Jason? No, I haven't thought about it much either. I mean, I do... I mean, what they would say is I, I don't think we can take any any line in the book as a throwaway line, right? I think Martin right. is so careful, so conscientious, which is why it takes forever to write these damn books. Um, <laughs> that that I think in terms of, yeah, whether it's a premonition or uh, 
uh, of her fate. And also, again, kind of going back to my theme, a sign of a sort of unrecognized wisdom that someone who, again, is kind of being ignored and shunned, that she's actually really important. And maybe it's kind of a what-if situation. Like, if only she hadn't died, what might she have become? She might have been, you know, some great, important figure. Mm-hmm. And this, I mean, this kind of ties with, with, with Bran, right? Um, right. Purple's bastards and broken things. Nice. You know, it's, <laughs> those are the ones we should be paying attention to. Interesting. Now, okay, so I think that there's something about this that connects to the thing that really frightens Shireen about what Patchface says. Uh, and I'll read, just read this part. The shadows come to dance, my lord, dance, my lord, dance, my lord. The shadows come to stay, my lord, stay, my lord, stay, my lord. And I wondered if this connects in some way to Patchface's sojourn, three-day sojourn under the ocean. And the reason why I mention this is because we know that in the later books, Martin is absolutely going to start playing with Lovecraftian monster imagery. And of course, Lovecraft was absolutely fascinated with these monsters from the deep who were just at their core, utterly evil. And um, that like the Ironborn have this this prophetic guy, Lodos, who goes underneath the, the, the water for three days and comes back. Patchface seems to have survived with some kind of. I don't know. I don't know what to call it. I don't know if it's just. I think uh, in in some ways Martin likes to make make you wonder: is this supernatural or not? But if I'm going to read this in a Lovecraftian way, I would wonder if Patchface has some special knowledge of these hybrid fish creatures, human fish creatures that Martin wants to occupy the margins of his story, and I. Kate, I, I see you smiling. Yeah. And I like yeah, to hear no, I like to hear you just, respond to that. That's kind of I, I was and and this came up as we were talking about his attitudes to religion earlier as well. Um I I was thinking as I was reading it, and this was kind of another of my questions, is his patch faces kind of sojourn under the sea? Um can we tie that to the, the religion of the drowned god? And you yeah, know, yeah. is there evidence? Because I think Martin's quite even-handed in his treatment of religions. There's power to be found in almost all of the, the religions in, in some way, shape, and form. It's almost always limited as well. Right. Um, but is this kind of a, um, possible evidence, you know, that, that there is this power under the sea that is something the, the Ironborn's religion is, is tapping into? And is this another indication there of, yeah, things things under the sea because that's you know that's how he begins all of his all of his kind of mm-hmm. musings under the sea what he what he knows and and he has essentially been through the ritual of the drowned god he has been drowned and he has come back that's right that. yeah because he was a corpse or at least he was perceived to be a corpse and then they they try to drag him and then he coughs up the water this is all sort of crescent remembering what happened and then uh, that's exactly the the baptism ritual, uh, you know, the the weird uh, baptism ritual of the Ironborn. It's this idea that you, you everyone's basically dead, 
it's the the question is you know what are you going to do with your afterlife which with the ironborn all believe that they're after being baptized they are in their afterlife which may come back to your question jj you know i think that i guess a different beliefs of the afterlife kind of come into play here yeah and, and you know one of the other things that i think is interesting is in listening to all of your observations is that you know as a dramaturg and particularly with martin's characters i'm fascinated by characters that they can't escape who they are you know stannis is being introduced here and he's a second son mm. and he's <laughs> totally operates on the fact that he's slighted and ignored and yes. everything is a slight uh-huh. you know like you can't win with him you know because even when they he's upset because no one is is jumping on board with him as the rightful king uh-huh. and lawfully he is the rightful king um he's almost got he like a tell. nine-year-old sense of fairness he's like right. that's not fair i want right. that I, it's got to be right you know right <laughs> and then exactly and then you know when they do call him king it, he says well you mock me with the title of your grace <laughs> you know <laughs> Because right. nobody else follows me. He you can't just, get out of his own way. Right. Right. Exactly. And and that will haunt him throughout the entire course of his life. You know, even in his relationship with Shireen, right. you know, who he both loves and has a soft spot for because she she's a first child, but she has this disability that makes her slighted and ignored mm-hmm, mm-hmm. all the time. And yet at the same time, he slights her and ignores her, <laughs> you know? Right. Um, so it's this constant function of who the character is that keeps affecting them and has them falling into the same mistakes over and over. You know, Ned Stark wasn't supposed to be the, the Lord, you know, it was supposed to be his elder brother. Right. And he, but, and he, when he takes and functions as the Lord, he still, he can't get out of his own way. Everything's about honesty and honor and doing things properly. And, you know, he can't escape who he is and play the game of Thrones, you know, the way that it would, that he might survive longer. Um, And I'm always fascinated by that with, with Martin and with his characters, because I mean, that's similar to the way I approach drama, you know? Sure. Yeah. Uh, and it is it is it, it it is really nice to see a scene where the character is going to have to walk in and encounter themselves in some way. Mm-hmm. Like whether it's sort of like a familiar character where they always fall into the same patterns or maybe it's a, a character whose personality is going to reveal something about them that you mm-hmm. couldn't otherwise reveal. Right. Um and I think maybe Stannis more than anyone else is always Stannis in every room that he's in because he is so stubborn and because he is so motivated by pride. It's almost like he's unable to actually play politics because he's unable to like, you know, win friends and influence people. He cannot bend this guy. Right. He's just, and it keeps him standing still really through the, the entire course of his life. Interesting. You know, he can try to go forward, but he's so stubborn that he won't move. He won't budge. Yeah. Um, and that is always, he's always at odds with that. You know, it's always an issue, um, you know, and winds up getting himself killed in the end. You know, even his advancements where he um, 
you know, in this particular attack, that they're already talking about him, you know, going forward with an attack and he wants to, you know, launch a fight, pick a fight with King's Landing. And he doesn't have the the men for it. Right. right? He doesn't have the men for it. And he's going ahead anyway, come hell or high water. And, you know, it gets him fairly far. Um, To a certain extent, he winds up, you know, being the hero at the wall and coming in and rescuing you know, the Night's, the Night's Watch. Yeah. Um, when they're, you know, when they're battling the wildlings. But ultimately, sooner or later, it's going to get him killed. And it does when he goes up against the Boltons. Yeah, yeah. So I always just find that really an interesting aspect with George and with his sure. characters. Now, Jason, uh, do, I, I forget, have we asked for your question for the group yet? I think, I think we uh, have not. Yeah, we we haven't got gotten to my question. I was, if I can just make one quick observation about Stannis too. I really, uh, everything JJ was saying resonates with my read on that character, and I'm just thinking too in terms of you know when he makes the awful decision about Shireen. You know, I think at that point, the you know if it was just about like like JJ used the word pride, and I think that's exactly the right character trait to describe Stannis because. Pride isn't just about his sort of lust for power. I think if it was that, I think maybe his love for his daughter would have overridden that, right? If 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 killing Shireen was only a means for him to be, you know, to to gain the Iron Throne, that wouldn't have been enough. Nor his sense of even righteousness and that, you know, I I ought to be the king. It's when Melisandre, having now poisoned his ears for yeah, yeah. You know, years by this point that the Lord of light has chosen you to save all of Westeros from this great threat that's coming. Yes. And only you Stannis can do that. So it's not about I'm rightfully the King or I want to be King. It is. I I'm the savior. It's a Messiah complex. Right. And that's, again, that comes from pride and that's why he is willing to, to kill, you know, burn Shireen alive as a sacrifice well it's so, also probably the reason why he's willing because he's not that in, invested in this new religion right yeah. but it happens to be a new political advisor who's telling him that he's special everything is going to work out for him and this is all foreseen in the flame and it kind of strokes his ego and i mean who who would who knows whether or not he would have any tolerance for this if melisandre was saying Here's what you do. It's, you got to do the right thing. And of course, uh, I, I've looked in the flame and Renly's going to be the next king. I don't think that he would have been very happy with that prophecy if it if it wasn't advantageous to himself. Right. Oh, yeah. No, I agree. But, it definitely serves his ego, but in a different way than simply he his wanting to sit on the Iron Throne is is ego driven. Interesting. Yeah. yeah. He also had I think it appeals to his strong sense of duty. Mm-hmm. Um, which ties back with everything else that we're saying. He has, he has, so he's so adamant about doing his duty come hell or high water. Mm. Um, and, you know, he's been told he's the, essentially the prince that was promised. And the prince that was promised has to sacrifice, you know, the people, someone that he loves in order to accomplish mm. this goal. Mm. And I think that also ties in with the, an almost religious aspect of, him sacrificing his daughter. Um, I hadn't thought about that, but if he really does believe he's the prince who has promised, part of that prophecy involves 
the killing of someone that you love. I, I really but hadn't my, made that connection till now. Thank you. So Which well, again I, ties in with so so much other literature and pop culture. Thinking of you know that um, Thanos uh, having to you know make sacrifice to get the Soul Stone and stuff mm-hmm. like that. It's again mm-hmm. very common theme. Yeah, yeah and we really could probably even like if we wanted to, we could like go back to like ancient texts like Abraham and Isaac. Mm-hmm. And I don't know. Kate, I'm wondering if you see any connections here with Norse mythology. Um, so yeah, I think sacrifice is always such a such a kind of um, significant act in all all kind of mythologies and and literatures. Um, certainly in in the Norse mythology, lots of the gods sacrifice parts of themselves to gain mm. to gain power, to gain abilities. Um, Odin with his eyes, kind of a classic example. Um, and then the death of Baldur is the kind of major Norse myth where yeah. the favored son is killed in this instance through through trickery, and they cannot bring him back mm. from the dead. Um, so I think there's certainly there's certainly resonances. Um, but I think one of the the key things, or one of the key questions I have about Stannis as a character is is how far the show diverges or will diverge from sure. the books. Yeah, because um, of course in the in the books we don't have his death yet. No, or right? even I think the only thing Martin confirmed is that Shireen will be burnt to death as part of a sacrifice. But I think who will be doing that burning is still potentially um, hmm. uncertain. Hmm. Um, now, Jason, I'm sorry. I, I I think that maybe we didn't get your official question. Oh, we're gonna sure. we're gonna require that of you. <laughs> okay. Um, so here's my question, and actually, um, I think Anthony, you alluded to this earlier. Um, you know, uh, Maester Crescent's you know self sacrifice for the sake of of you know in the in the hopes of killing Melisandre and preventing this you know potential fratricide. Um, you know, again, I'm an ethicist in ethics. You know, we talk about well. First of all, the ethics of assassination, right? Um, you know, Dietrich Bonhoeffer and uh, his involvement mm-hmm. in the plot to assassinate Hitler during World War II, and so on. Um, and uh, and there's even evidence that that the Vatican knew about this or other plots to assassinate Hitler and kind of turned a blind eye, like they didn't, you know, call him out and maybe like provided information to help the mm. plotters. Um, there's uh, so, so you know, there, there's a lot of moral gray area there. Yeah, and that's of course what Mr. Chris is trying to do is you know commit a, 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 a an assassination for the sake of you know greater good, which can easily justify by a sort of utilitarian ethic, right? Greatest good for the greatest number of people. But if you're not a utilitarian, then you there might be other principles or duties you think are are inviolable, including you know killing another human being, even if it's to save others, right? And then that's also ties into the ethics of, of suicide. Um, and in this case, right, this is a rationally chosen suicide um, for the sake of being able to commit this, um, uh, this assassination. So in other words, we have a potential double right or potential double wrong here. <laughs> <laughs> Either Maester Crest is justified in attempting to kill Melisandre and in the process, you know, accepting his own suicide or he's wrong on both sides. Um, 
because both of their deaths would have been morally wrong. So, so I, my question is, yeah, yeah, can we justify it? Double right? Yeah, or double let, right? let me let me throw my hat in the ring here. I think that one of the major differences between the show and the book here is Crescent's motivation. I feel like it's almost put in the show as if Crescent is defending the faith of the seven against this foreign deity and these foreign worshipers in this chapter. And I'll just read this passage here. Crescent seems motivated by his love for Renly and for Stannis. He can't stand the thought of, of his sons. They're not biological sons, but he views them as sons. Uh, He can't stand the thought of, of one of them killing the other. So this passage says, when a maester donned his collar, he put aside the hope of children. Yet Crescent had oft felt a father nonetheless, Robert Stannis Renly, three sons he had raised. After the angry sea claimed Lord Stefan, had he done so ill that now he must watch one kill the other? He could not allow it. He would not allow it. So he feels like a father. He's you really get the sense that like I cannot stand the idea that one of my sons would kill the other son. The source of this is the woman. And so he thinks it'd be better for me to kill a woman. The gods will have to judge me and I think they'll probably forgive me. That's what he says. But it'd be better for me to kill this foreign woman than for one son to kill another. And I think you could look at that as you can kill a foreigner with no consequence or you can kill a woman with no consequence, uh, especially if she's like, you know, exhibiting which kind of characteristics and that kind of killing is probably more justified than a brother killing a brother. So I'm, I'm curious to hear what other folks think about that. Yeah. I think um, the, the question of, of kin killing is, is huge in game of Thrones. And that's definitely something you see, uh, explored in the medieval literature as well. Um, the the kind of the logical end of the revenge imperative where eventually you end up having to take vengeance sometimes on someone that is is a part of your family and what you do when mm. um, the, the kind of obligations of revenge are in direct conflict with family obligations and, and other relationships. And I think that's a kind of unsolvable problem that a lot of literature has try to wrestle with because there is no perfect solution. Um, and yeah, I think certainly here, I think it's really interesting that that's his, his motivation that he sees himself in this fatherly role. Um, but also I think that he doesn't, um, my reading of it certainly was that he was initially hoping to just assassinate her without having to commit suicide. Hmm. And it's not until he, he loses that place of honor, right? She's sat next to Stannis and, and he doesn't have a place anymore. So he can't sit close to her. He can't slip the, the, the strangler into her cup. And that's when he comes to this decision that he, he has to do it and he has to sacrifice himself in the process. And I think it's also really interesting that the, the only person who, who objects and who sees is Davos. Mm. Um, and you know, he he clearly tries sort of tries to persuade him not to do it very tacitly. I think probably more because he knows that it's a bit hopeless. But um, in some ways, I think this this whole prologue is one of Martin's great 
instances of slight misdirection um, where mm. ostensibly it's all about Stannis, it's all about his claim for the throne, but really it's the introduction of Davos Seaworth. Yeah, and it, sure. it's the one kind man in another court full of assassins, proud, stubborn kings and, and you know, people that neglect children and um, and pursue glory. And, and, and Davos is really the one person that just is in utter contrast. He's wearing this sober garb in comparison yeah. to everyone else. He's, he's kind to Crescent on the stairs. He speaks the truth always. And then obviously that's the perspective we actually pick up throughout the novels. It's, it's Davos who has the, the POV yes. chapters. Um, and I think in some ways this is a, actually a secret kind of um, introduction that, that's meant to, to bring to the fore Davos and all of his, his qualities. Absolutely. And I would I'd love to talk about Davos. I do want to mention before we get to Davos is that, you know, JJ, one of the things that you were mentioning was you love characters who, um, who meet themselves or, you know, ha- have to, I forget you said it better than I did. <laughs> but, but one of the things you said about uh, Stannis was that he's a second son. And that, that's exactly what Crescent says. He says, I've always loved, I've always tried to love Stannis a little bit extra. And he was always kind of my favorite because I noticed that no one was giving him love because not only is he a second son, he doesn't have the playful personality that Renly had as the youngest. Right. He wasn't adored like Renly was. He was, he was the overlooked middle child, right? Mm-hmm. And of course, you know, that so Crescent always kind of thought, all right, that's the guy that kind of needs a little bit of extra of my fatherly guidance. And so you're almost seeing at the end here a father figure being utterly discarded by a son in this case. Yeah. I mean, he really kind of sets him aside in this chapter, you know, very bluntly. Yeah. For being too old. And I think that also helps to you know all these things are all inextricably tied together you know um he's a father and yet he's you know because he he also represents the fate also represents the face of the seven mm. you know and the fact it's not just that yes melisandre she's female which is a strike against her um you know mm-hmm. she's a foreigner which is a strike against her but she's also this religion that is completely foreign to him and he sees as an evil. So he's both the secular and the non-secular. He's like this pseudo father. And he's also like a pseudo high priest um, because maesters are sort of treated that way. And I just find the whole thing fascinating and all that just coming to a head in this chapter where he's just got, he's got nothing left except the hope of bringing her down for all these greater goods as, even as it's all slipping through his fingers. Yeah. I guess the second reading, I really found that interesting. I think the first, the first reading, I was a a bit impatient and I didn't really, you know, I didn't really see any of the Lovecraftian stuff with patch face. And I didn't really care about Shireen and Mm -hmm. I didn't really care about, you know, there was a bunch of stuff that was brought into this chapter that is absolutely serving the larger vision even the map table right the you walk into that room and it's like if there wasn't a map in your head and and it told you where dragonstone was in relationship to the rest of rest westeros 
that map table absolutely serves that purpose. It's a long chapter and a long prologue, and yet there's nothing. Nothing gets wasted. You know, yeah. Every line has is going to have has is so weighted um, in ways that we have no idea on the first reading <laughs> that it could possibly carry right. that much weight to it. Right. Um, and it's only on by going back and looking at it again that you realize all these different aspects with almost everything that is said. It, there's just really a litany of. Yeah of significant characters and references line by almost line by line. Right. Um, that it, it's really, it's one of the most significant prologues as well. I know, think with the that, characters that are in it. Absolutely. The characters are the, what stands out to me. And, and going back to what you're saying, Kate, about the introduction to Davos, I think I realize that the actor who plays Davos in the show is, is much older than the act, than the, the character I've met on the page here, and and a bit different too. It's like I always kind of felt like the Davos in the show was sort of like a conduit of folksy wisdom, you know, who who could always talk his way out of everything or talk his way into anything. The way that he's introduced in this chapter is words are wind, you know. <laughs> it's 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 a very it's a very much of a different introduction to this guy even though he has the same backstory about his fingers and whatnot. But I, I was wondering if, uh, Kate, if you talk a little bit about, more about Davos's introduction here. Yeah, I think that's a really interesting point about, about his age. I mean, yeah, it's, that happens quite a lot in, in some of the Game of Thrones casting, I think, that um, some of these intergenerational dynamics are, are changed a little bit. Um, yeah, I think that's that's a really great point that he is he is introduced yeah as as quite a kind of a straight talker there and he's I think what came across to me was his intense frustration with the job he had to do um, you know as a man who seems almost like shackled by his duty he doesn't enjoy this he sees the defeat at the end of it and yet he he just has to do it because he has a kind of real belief like Stannis Baratheon in some ways in duty, um, even though, you know, everything that he thinks Stannis is doing, he, he thinks is, is wrong, really. Um, and and I, I think it's a really interesting question in the larger kind of narrative arc of the books where, where Davos will end up. Because obviously in the show, he kind of ends up jumping camp and, and he ends up with John and, and as a kind of advisor like that. Yes. And really, we don't have many hints yet in the books as to, you know, he's been sent off to potentially smuggle Rickon off Skagos. Um, mm. And how significant that will turn out to be is very hard to say when all of that storyline has been cut from the show. Um, yeah, we're almost seeing like the passing of the old maester, but the new maester, Pylos, he's kind of insignificant it's almost like Stannis has decided I'm going to, I'm going to have different advisors. Yeah. Different kinds of advice, different yes, kinds of advisors. Right. And, and Davos is certainly one of those, but you know, you could also view Salise as an advisor. You could view Mel as an advisor. Um, it's almost like Stannis needs the advice of younger people because he wants to be a bit more bold and, Mr. Crescent almost sort of 
demonstrates like the caution and wisdom mm-hmm. of an old man, you know. But I think really cleverly, Maester Cretton is saying a lot of stuff that as a reader, as you were saying, coming off the back of reading book one, you're really eager to get back to the Starks and you're thinking, wouldn't it be great if he just turned up and, and brought a load of troops to Rob Stark's aid and, <laughs> and everything he's saying about, you know, these are all the ways we could defeat the Lannisters, which after book one is what we desperately want to do. Yes. Um, that's all put in his voice and it's all shot down by Stannis. And um, it's a really unsympathetic introduction in that way to Stannis because the, the people that that we are kind of sympathizing with are, are Crescent and Davos who are saying things that that we we would like Stannis to listen to. Um, and he right. stubbornly absolutely will not. So I want to point out a few book differences here. I already mentioned uh, Crescent's relationship with the boys is really highlighted. In the show, um, there was sort of the burning of the seven statues. For the night is dark and full of terrors. For the night is dark and full of terror. Uh, that's kind of how Mel is introduced, and that doesn't happen in this chapter. In the book, Mel Sandra has red eyes. I, th- I thought that was interesting. I'm glad they didn't bring that to the show. Um, that <laughs> absolutely would have changed my opinion of her. Um, notable introductions in this chapter. We hear the phrase, the night, night is dark and full of terrors for the first time. We're introduced to Crescent and Pylos and Shireen and Patchface and Davos. And I mean, that's there's a number of other characters, but those are all really key characters going forward. Um, Melisandre, of course. Uh, we hear about the alchemist of Lys uh, and a little bit about poisoning from Lys, which actually kind of falls into uh a, a few other narratives we, we know that the the tears of lease are, are going to be important for uh murders in this story and then notable departure in this episode in this chapter simply crescent crescent is both introduced and disposed of in the narrative uh any observations uh, about this chapter from each of you, I, w- I would love to, uh, if you, if you had something that you wanted to say, we didn't get it into this conversation. Now's the time. Well, if I can go first on this, because I wanted to piggyback off uh, Kate's uh, discussion of Davos. Um, first of all, yeah. You know, in terms of the difference between the character and the show, obviously Liam Cunningham's such an indelible performance that yeah. I can't, despite the description being different, right. I can't help, but still not see him in that Absolutely. role. Right. Um, maybe more so than other characters. Um, but anyways, the the thing about Davos is it, you, I think Anthony, you were talking about like the, the idea of duty and yeah, Stannis is, you know, fulfilling what he thinks is his duty as the rightful King and, and, and Crescent, everyone's, you know, looking at their duty. I think the way Davos conceives of duty is slightly different than the others though. Hmm. Uh, well, it's, it's kind of like Crescent's in both of them. It's about relationships, right? And that's kind of the thing with Stannis. Stannis is a kind, he's kind of a, a loner. I mean, hmm. they even border on some sort of like sociopathic tendencies. Um, again, we see him. Yeah, he doesn't even want people talking at the table, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. So, and so his sense of duty, which again goes back to you know JJ's earlier point, you know, feeds into his own pride, his own ego, but it's also you get this very detached, 
you know, he, he doesn't want to do his duty to, you know, for the sake of Westeros or for the sake of anyone. Um, and in that sense, it kind of parallels a Daenerys and, you know, maybe her ability, uh, at least in the show, to, you know, turn into the Mad Queen at the end, being fueled by the fact that she doesn't really care about these people. She's not connected to these Westerosians, even though she's been striving to try and rule them, right? It seems like Stannis is kind of the same way. It's like, I don't really care about these people, but I should, I'm the rightful ruler, right? It's a little bit interesting because in that Danny's almost forced into being a loner. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's almost like Stannis is like every turn is choosing to be a loner. I don't know. I mean, I, I think that there's something to be said there. And yeah. I don't know. There, there is also the Dragonstone parallel as well. Oh, yeah. Uh, I think the geography is is very indicative of who Stannis is. But yeah, and this is all just to go back to Davos that I think, like, like, like you said, Maester Cresson is willing to attempt to kill Melisandre, willing, yet not initially, as, as uh, Kate Bradley pointed out, but in the end, to sacrifice himself for his love for Renly and Stannis, right? It's it's relationship-driven. It's not some ethereal duty. Mm, and mm. I think the same is true of Davos. It's because Davos was loyal to Stannis because of how Stannis treated him. Mm. You know, he <laughs> he owes Stannis at a very personal indebtedness. Yes, that's yeah. right. Absolutely. So that's my yeah. final observation just to add. <laughs> that's really interesting. Um, you know, I... I think Stannis, he's so locked into not being loved and being ignored and being shunned, you know, and yet, you know, there's that one point where he goes into his diatribe about, uh, you know, Robert not thanking him, you know, you know, he doesn't come up and says, I love you, you know, thank you, brother. You know, he don't, he showed no love for me. And he's jealous he, of Ned Stark. Right, and he's right? jealous of Ned. And, you know, so at some deeply human level he craves all these things yeah and yet when people offer it to him you know he's so used to not getting it and so you know that initial wound of never getting enough love even when people offer it to him he throws it away with both hands you know and rejects it outright yeah and so that i i just find fascinating and deeply human (laughs) you know sure yeah absolutely any final thoughts, Kate? Yeah, um, yeah, just a, a couple of final thoughts. Um, firstly, just going back to what you were saying about afterlives, um, it's just reminded me, um, we were talking about kind of Patchface being kind of the walking dead, you know, yeah. um, and, and all of those who've been through that ritual. And it reminded me again in A Dance with Dragons, when Val sees Shireen for the first time, she basically describes her as the walking dead. She says... Huh. You know, because of the grayscale, she says um, she's unclean and she oh. basically says she's this walking corpse and she demands that that Jon Snow make sure she has no um, contact with the baby because she doesn't want the baby um, oh. to get ill. And so, again, this this extra connection between Patchface and Shireen, that both of them are seen by kind of others as you know, almost already having died and, and existing in some right. afterlife space. Um, and then, yeah, my, my other final thought was just, um, again, you know, Martin is a real master of kind of narrative structure and, and picking up motifs. And, and I think one of the, the key introductions in that prologue as well is, is the strangler, this, this purple poison, because um, we get this um, 
the fool and and in this case the fool as an assassin kind of crescent um in his final moments he's the assassin and he's also wearing this motley helmet and yes. um, and it's embodying the the fool and of course then at the very the very end of Sansa's last chapter so Sansa's first chapter has these these parallels to the prologue and then Sansa's last chapter in A Clash of Kings ends with her getting this hairnet that she's told by Dontos is um, yes. is vengeance Very is good. justice and yeah, this is the fool right Dontos the fool now providing the strangler and again I think I think he he brings this motif of the fool in in the prologue, but it's actually Sansa and Dantos that then kind of embody it throughout the rest of the book. Nice. And again, this idea of killing kings. But again, you know, just as as Sansa was asking for mercy when she said, you know, he's like a fool and suggested Dantos be made a fool. And whereas Melisandre and Selyse are very much looking for humiliation when they make that same suggestion. And again, of course, Dantos dies in the plot as well. Yes, he also right? ends up a dead a dead assassin and um, a dead fool. I mean, he doesn't actually affect the the, the poison of Joffrey, but he's instrumental. Um, yeah. And again, the motivations, you know, Crescent, Crescent there is is trying to to kill someone to save a king, um, whereas Dantos is trying to kill a king to save someone else. Interesting. Wow. I love that. Fantastic. I couldn't have asked a better panel. Thank you so much uh, for uh, joining us. And thank you. Um, I really enjoyed your observations, you two. It, it was just fascinating to hear your perspectives. It was really great. Thank you all. One last little thing. Kate, uh, you recently published a book, and we'd love to hear the title. Um, so it's called... Um... Kinship in Old Norse Myth and Legend. And it was published by Boyd Allen Brewer. Yeah, I'll link it in um, the show notes for sure. It's called, what is it? Kinship in Old Norse Myth and Legend. Yes. And then, uh, Jason, you have a new book on Star Wars that's on its way. Is that correct? Yes, that's right. Um, so I co-edited a book with my colleague, uh, Professor Kevin Decker. It's called um, Star Wars and Philosophy Strikes Back. And uh, it's a collection of uh, 30 essays uh, written by various uh, philosophers um, and, and uh, people versus a few other disciplines on philosophical themes in Star Wars. And I'll put a link to that in the chat as well. It's already available for pre-order uh, through Amazon. It'll be available in February 2023. Fantastic. And Thanks then, of course, JJ, we're not allowed to talk about your forthcoming project yet. Is that is that right? That's the case. Yes. Okay, so we won't. We're we will not. We will not say anything more. Um, all right. Have a great day. Um, it's a privilege, and, and I can't wait to read your books. They both sound terrific. It's like totally my jam. So you'll each sell at least one more copy. Thank you. Academic sales. One yeah. copy is fantastic. Right. Okay, right. y'all. Yeah. Thank it's you. Lovely to meet everyone. Yeah. Thank, thank you so much. Yes. Thank you, Thanks, Anthony. Yeah. <laughs>